The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. O Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. Then of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Alphonsus says that one drop of blood, as Father Jenkins pointed out, is sufficient, not only for the salvation of mankind, but it would be sufficient for the salvation of 10,000 races of mankind because of who he was and who he is. He is the eternal Son of God through whom all things are made. He became a man, took to himself a human nature, and therefore whatever he did was of infinite value. One drop of that precious blood is of value in terms of merit that is infinitely greater than sin is in terms of demerit. But St. Alphonsus says that one drop of blood would have been sufficient for justice, but one drop of blood would not have been sufficient for love. He wanted to convince us of something. He wanted to convince us of the malice of sin, as Father Jenkins pointed out, but he also wanted to convince us of the depth of his love for us and of the immensity of his desire to be loved by us. He could say to us, who could resist me now? If they have not loved me in the past, how could they not love their God, sweating blood, crowned with thorns, scourged and nailed to a cross? It is inconceivable that the entire earth is not on its knees every Good Friday, adoring and thanking this God who became a man and died the ignominious death of the cross in order to prove his love and in order to win the love of men. But the response that he gets is coldness from the hearts of men. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine time. Yourself? Well, fine. Thanks for being here. Good. Father, I would uh, I would like to start a series tonight on the 15 decades of the Rosary. We've we've actually received a few requests uh, for this series to begin, and so I would like to focus tonight on just the first uh, the first decade, the first mystery of the Rosary. That would be the the joyful mysteries, and in particular the Annunciation. And so I would like to talk about that tonight, Father, and really just try and uh, offer a few points uh, for meditation as we are praying this first joyful mystery of the Annunciation. And uh, so, to begin with, Father, it seems that uh, the the real theme of this mystery of the Annunciation, really, you could perhaps say the whole rosary, 
in, in general, the, the real theme would seem to be the virtue of humility. We have um, obviously the, the example that Our Lady set and accepting to, uh, to be the mother of God. But we also have the, the ultimate act of humility in our Lord and condescending to, to our level to take a human nature. So, Father, why is it that uh, so much emphasis is put on this, this virtue of humility? Why is that so important to us? Well, humility is essentially truth. It is acknowledging the truth of who we are as creatures, right? Acknowledging the fact that we are creatures of God. We're fallen, sinful creatures, but redeemed creatures. And so uh, it puts us in our proper perspective. Um, Pride is exalting oneself uh, in in an unjust way. It is not accepting the reality of, of who we are. It's trying to impose ourselves and imagine perfections we don't have. But uh, in the case of our Lord, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God becoming man, he uh, he truly did humble himself. St. Paul used the expression, he emptied himself. And um, that doesn't mean he stopped being God, of course. He didn't... God did not become man in that sense that he stopped being God or he changed into man. It means that God took human nature of which, of which he is the person, the divine person. Um, and so God does know what it means now. He knows what it feels like to be nailed to a cross and to actually die there in agony. God knows what that feels like. That is a divine person whose human nature that is. That's why we honor the sacred heart and the precious blood, because they belong to the divine person of, of the Son of God, who is Jesus, uh, that God made man. Now, um, that certainly required gen, genuine humility to do that, especially in light of the fact that uh, great doctors and fathers of the church tell us that, that Lucifer... Uh, was created to be a kind of um, super guardian angel to all of this creation as the light carrier. And he found that to be so humiliating, he could not humble himself enough to place himself at our service, even though it was a matter of serving God who created him. Lucifer would not do that because of his pride. And here is God now who is the creator of all, who actually not only places himself at our service, but becomes our sacrifice of redemption, that he actually becomes one of us, becoming man precisely to be that sacrifice for our salvation. Now, there is true, unspeakably great humility, you know. So even the angels are in awe of this. Humility of God, the divine humility, you might say. And uh, it is mirrored in Our Lady, in Our Blessed Mother. She mentions this in the Magnificat, which we commemorate in the very next mystery of the Rosary, <clears throat> that it was her loneliness that enabled God to exalt her so high. <clears throat> that God regarded her loneliness, her humility. Mm-hmm. Um, she, again, this pertains to the visitation, right? Uh, when she answered Elizabeth's greeting, 
Uh, Elizabeth had answered Mary's greeting originally <clears throat> by telling her about uh, blessed is she who believes what the Lord has promised will be done to her and mentioning that the child, John the Baptist, leaped for joy in her womb. Mary, our blessed mother, responded with the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. <clears throat> she goes on to say, inspired by the Holy Ghost to say these words, that uh, it is because of her lowliness that God hath regarded his handmaid, and precisely that regarded the lowliness of his handmaid, her humility. So there we see in both personages, uh, the, the mother and the newly conceived son of God, now man within her own womb, we see extraordinary, well, all humility, I guess, is extraordinary, but we see uh, inconceivably great humility uh, that is uh, a real wonder. It's a, it's a point of uh, endless meditation and, and, Father, how, and in heaven contemplation. How, how can we imitate this humility? We have this, like you said, this, this awesome, incomprehensible act of humility that our Lord performed. You know, it's, it's the ultimate condescension to descend from his uh, divine nature and to take our human nature we we can't even comprehend anything even if if a human nature was to uh take the the nature of the lowest type of animal or or something there would be no comparison between what god has done uh descending from a divine nature to a human nature so how can we possibly imitate well, he what, didn't what descend a, so much well, from a divine nature to accept he condescended, you might say, to accept the human nature, but I, I know what you mean. So, mm -hmm. so how, how, what can we learn from that? How can we imitate that when it's... We did, we did, say, we did say in the Creed that he descended, mm -hmm. right? He even descended into hell, right? After his death on earth, so we do use the expression. But how can we imitate that? Well, we imitate our Blessed Mother. If that has to do with us magnifying our Lord, that is glorifying him, uh, adoring him, then that's what we do. That's what Our Lady did. And Our Lady showed us how to do that. And uh, certainly the second statement that she made, that her soul rejoiced in God, her Savior. Um, if we rejoiced in God all the time, we would never sin. The trouble with sin is we, re we rejoice in something to the exclusion of God. We find our joy where it should not be. Uh, we place something in our lives that we love more than God, that we prefer to God. And that uh, giving a greater love to any creature than to the Creator, who is our, our Redeemer as well, to, to divert that love to a creature is the supreme insult to God. And um, so that is why um, Our Lady was actually telling us the secret of her own sanctity that her entire life was about magnifying God <clears throat> and worshiping him and adoring him. And her entire joy was to be found in him. She did not ever uh, find joy or seek her joy in anything other than God, certainly not to the exclusion of God, certainly not uh, preferring anything created to, to God whom she loved above all. Always. And she not only loved him most of all, she loved him with all her heart and all her mind and all her soul and all her strength. Our Lady is the, is the only one we see who, without question, fulfilled the first great commandment at every moment of her life in loving God with all of her powers of loving. 
And how else are we to understand the words of the Magnificat? My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. This is the, the key to our, our sanctity. As I say, our sinfulness comes from preferring something to God, from loving something more than God, from finding our joy or trying to find our joy in something other than God, even something that uh, that is incompatible with the love of God because we, we set up an idol in our soul and say, I love this more than God, and I can't do that, so God has to go. This is I prefer this to God. Mary never did that, ever did that. Um, so, um, again, that's the secret and to her sanctity because, as she says, it was always a recognition of her place, of who God really is, and who she really is. That's her lowliness. That's humility. She never lost track of that. Her pride never clouded that. Uh, it was a mere, merely a, a matter of facing reality of who she really is, the handmaid. Even, even, even this time. I mean, here's the angel, okay? He comes to Mary. She is troubled. She's not being troubled at being visited by an angel. The gospel says she's troubled at his word. But he says to her, but not that he comes to her and addresses her, which makes one think that she was no stranger to a heavenly visitation. But in this particular case, she's troubled at his word, puzzled by it. How is she to be the mother of the Savior when she has, in fact, avowed her virginity? Um, and so this seems to be a dilemma in her own mind, and she wants to know God's will. How is this to be done? How is this to be done? <clears throat> uh, that's her only question, right? And um, because she wants to be sure that she herself is faithful in what she does. And that's where the angel says, the power of the Most High shall come upon her. The Holy Ghost will overshadow her. And it will be by the power of God that she can she will conceive the Son of God. Okay. And then what does she say? She could have said, "Behold," as an answer to the angel. She could have said, "Behold, the mother of the Lord." Right. She could have easily said that. "Behold, the mother of the Lord." That's my answer to you. Yes. Behold, the mother of my of the of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. She doesn't say that. She's simply even in becoming his mother. She's she is she never stops being his handmaid. She's always his handmaid. She's there to serve, right? And there are those who might question and say, well, sure, you know, it's, when humility is left there, you say, I'm becoming the mother of the Son of God on earth. I mean, what uh, woman, uh, Jewish or otherwise, would not say, well, certainly, you know, I, I certainly choose me. You know? I'll accept that. Uh, talk about exalting someone. And, uh, but our Blessed Mother really understood what she was doing here. Contrary to what Francis would have you believe, our Blessed Mother was not double-crossed by God. So that later on she would challenge and say, I was deceived to do this. Francis actually said that. It's incredible the blasphemies involved here. But the Blessed Mother knew very well she knew the prophecies of Isaiah about the suffering Savior. She knew what she was accepting. She knew that she was accepting the cross. I mean, imagine a mother who would uh, be willingly become the mother of 
uh, a, a, a figure who would be the historical figure of the Savior who was coming into the world condemned to death and the death of the cross and realized that her motherhood was destined also to bear the Savior who would bear the cross. That took an enormous amount of self-abandonment to God and a, a tremendous amount of, uh, well, again, humility. Uh, she would have to share as a kind of a mother's counterpart to the humility of the Savior, whose mother she would be. So it, it, you might say, in, in a sense, the Savior in, in becoming man was accepting all that that required of him, the will of the Father, and that he was looking for a woman who would in a, somehow correspond to his own humility. And he found that correspondence to his humility in hers. And that was the key to the choice of this particular woman. The woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the woman who would uh, be the enemy of Satan. So, uh, yes, I mean, you're right when you zero in on the virtue of humility, because that is what we see active here. And, Father, something else to consider with this uh, first joyful mystery of the Annunciation is that this is the uh, the occasion of the first Hail Mary that, that was ever said. Mm -hmm. These were the, the words of the, the Archangel Gabriel. And just dwelling for just a minute upon that, that prayer, the Hail Mary, why is it that that prayer is, is so powerful? You know, this says uh, with the rosary, we, we pray the, the 50 or, or even the 150 Hail Marys, plus we have the three Hail Marys at the beginning of the rosary for the uh, the increase of faith, hope, and charity. This this very short prayer, the Hail Mary, has, has been the go-to prayer for uh, for millions and millions of Catholics throughout centuries and centuries. What is it about this this very little, very short prayer that makes it so powerful, so popular, and, and so pre prevalent in the Catholic religion? Well, as the Our Father itself taught to us by the Son of God, personally present in response to the Apostle's request, Lord, teach us how to pray. So the Hail Mary uh, is, uh, these are the words of the Father. Um, the angel Gabriel came to Mary to address her with the message from the Father. He was a messenger, as an angel, an archangel. He is the arch messenger, as it were, from God. And he is conveying to Mary the the words of God, the Father. And the message from the angel, it is important to point out, is originates with the Father himself, uh, inviting Mary to be the mother of the Savior, his own son on earth. And uh, so when we hear the words of the Hail Mary, we actually find in those words the message from the Father to Mary. And we rejoice in those words, as Mary rejoiced in God, her Savior. So we rejoice with her in that message that she is called to be the mother of God. Um, both of these prayers are of divine origin, therefore. The one who gave the message to the angel being the Father in heaven, we repeat those words with great joy, with confidence, that we are repeating not only the words of the angel, we're repeating a divine message. We're repeating the words 
that gave great joy to our Blessed Lady that began the, the work of redemption on earth with the Incarnation and uh, that actually um, mark, mark a, a, a most significant moment in the history of the world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. What could be more profound than that? What could be more joyful than that? What could be more joyful than the, the, the mind of the angel, the archangel Gabriel, in actually bringing the message and bringing those words to Mary? One might even argue <clears throat> that in repeating those words of the archangel, I am repeating the words of a divine messenger I am reliving that moment. I am rejoicing with him in the message of mankind's redemption, that the moment has come for the incarnation to take place. All of, all of the above, I, I am reliving that moment every time I pray the Hail Mary. That's what I'm supposed to be doing anyway, as if we're reliving that moment. And it reminds us about our Blessed Mother that there are at least two times in sacred scripture that we find uh, an event happening with our Lord and our Blessed Mother. And it is stated then that Mary kept all of this in her heart and she kept this in and she pondered this, pondered this over in her heart as though her heart was sort of a divine receptacle of, of the mysteries of the life of Jesus Christ on earth, the mysteries of redemption. Well, when we pray the words, not just recite the words, when we pray the words of the Hail Mary, that's what we're doing. We're doing what Our Lady did. We're pondering these words over in our heart and trying to penetrate the, the infinite mystery there. Impossible for us, really, to fully penetrate an infinite mystery, which is what it is. And so it's like a, an abyss of wisdom and abyss of grace to think about this. Uh, we're one to meditate for all eternity on the mystery. One could never fathom it <clears throat> because it is of the very um, designs of the, the infinitely wise and loving designs of an infinitely wise and loving God. And it's all, it's portrayed there. I mean, it's expressed in those words. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Uh, we could say those words over a, a hundred million times, a hundred million times, a hundred million times, and never exhaust them. This is the this is what a loving soul does, you know. Meditates on what he loves. And if this is what one loves, he will never find um, first of all, he will never find those words repetitive, and secondly, he'll never find them uh exhausting or exhausted, he'll always find something wonderful there. And Father, we've, we've considered uh, Our Lady and, and her point of view and this, this mystery of the Rosary, but what about um, the, the perspective of our Lord? It's very easy to, to take for granted uh, what, what he has done for us in, in becoming man, um, just simply because it, it, it's so prevalent. Our entire Catholic religion revolves around the fact that our, that our Lord became man. But when one considers the, the history of this and how with Adam and Eve and, and the first sin uh, of our parents, there was this infinite offense against God. Mankind committed an infinite offense because God is infinitely good. 
And so an infinite reparation was required, but mankind obviously not being infinite, it seemed that there was no possible solution to this to this problem. It, it seemed to be... Um, well, man cannot do anything infinite right. because he is finite. Someone right. might question, well, why would the sin have, you know, be infinitely bad? And the answer is because the measure of the sin is not according to the one who sins, but the object of the sin, exactly. the dignity of the one who is offended. Exactly. In that case, it is God. It was exactly. infinite goodness. That is the measure of the gravity of the sin, and man can never measure up to that. Exactly. So there, there appears on the surface to be an impossible conundrum here. It, it does seem to be an impasse. It, it, it? And yet, um, our, our Lord God became man. I believe in, in one of the epistles. There's a uh, there's a, a line where, where I believe it's Saint Paul says our, that our Lord God considered the fact that He was God not something to be clung to. <clears throat> And um, yes, right. it, it, it's uh, it's easy to overlook this fact, but but how how amazing is that, Father? That God, the divine nature, would become man. And when you consider that, secondly, you consider what what drove him to do this. What what made him do this? What made well, we know God it, become man? Ultimately, of course, it was love. Right? I mean, the Son of God, who is a distinct person from the Father. Grieved, I mean, you might say that. So the the injustice of the insult offered by creatures to the Father, and offered himself to make reparation to the Father. Such is the love between the Father and the Son, that the Son came primarily to repair the insult to the Father. It was an act of love, above all, for the Father, to repair that insult. Even if no human being had been redeemed, that would have been justification by easily for Christ to have suffered what he did, to repair the insult of, a cre of creatures to Father, the Father. But that love of the Son for the Father also is, you might say, joined to his love for us, and so that with one uh, mission here on this earth, he fulfilled the two purposes, for the sake of repairing the insult to the Father and redeeming us too, and giving us the possibility of having everlasting life. But Father, why exactly would our Lord do so much? Because it seems that one simple act of love, a single act well, of love, it, it would have been sufficient. So I mean, why any, so much? anything that our Lord suffered would have had infinite value because of the dignity of the one suffering. I mean, even. Even being laid in the manger with the straw, the discomfort there, any discomfort, even the first breath of our Lord with the chilled air, could have been of infinite value that he would have offered in reparation for the sins of mankind, for the sins of all this world or a million worlds or a billion worlds. There's no proportion between infinity and anything that can be numbered. Okay, So God could have, uh, our Lord could have uh, made reparation for uh, countless sins, even an infinite number of sins, if it were possible. But um, the fact is that that would not have redeemed anyone. I mean, I should say this. I beg your pardon. Let me, it would not have saved anyone. Uh, our Lord could, would have redeemed everyone by that. But the fact is, our Lord's message to us by the extreme of his suffering is to meet the challenge of not just redeeming us, but saving us. 
because we would need to turn from sin, repent of sin, love God, and, um, you know, accept, be in the state of God's grace. That involves moving our sinful wills. And so our Lord, by suffering all the terrible things he did, uh, had this in mind, that he was appealing to us to accept the love of God and to understand as well as we humanly could the greatness of God's love for us and to be willing to not only accept his love, but to love him in return. I mean, our Lord could have come to the earth and suffered um, and uh, completed his course here on earth, redeeming mankind, and yet not a single soul saved because not a single soul repent of its sins. But that is not uh, what our Lord's mission was. Our Lord's mission was to... Uh, make reparation for the insult of sin to the Father, but also move us to repent and to uh, accept the grace of God, to love him, to accept his forgiveness, and to, as our Lord said so clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, that involves love and humility, obedience, right? That's where love and humility meet in obedience. So, um, yes, it's true that our Lord could have offered any suffering. And because of the dignity of his divine person, it would have had infinite value as far as reparation. Mm -hmm. But our Lord himself could not be satisfied with that because it would be sufficient to redeem us. But he, as he himself saw, not sufficient because of our weakness to save us because he would need our cooperation to save us. Um, that is a measure of our depravity, but it is also the measure of his goodness, that he was willing to come so far and do so much and suffer so greatly for us. And, Father, and by the way, sure. even after all that he suffered, even after all of that, how many still, how many still will have none of it. Even that. Inconceivable. Even after all of that suffering, how many would still be lost? Our Lord suffered greatly in the Garden of Gethsemane at the thought of all the souls that would still be lost. Satan made sure of it, but he suffered for that, right? But he was aware, intensely aware of that. And so, you know, we see the need for God going to such extremes, it seems, in manifesting his love for us so that any of us could be saved. And Father, I believe I've, I've heard it said before that, um, you know, if, if our Lord just strictly wanted to accomplish justice, he, he could have just performed one act of love or one act of suffering. But that would be what, what was the least that he could do. And since our Lord loved us so much, he... he instead ask the question, what is the most that could yeah. possibly be done? And that is what, what drove him to such extremes. Yeah. And I believe the, um, the our Lord's actions have been referred to as a, a kind of divine folly. It's been referred to before. And, and I believe perhaps it was St. Alphonsus who said something along the lines of considering, when one considers our Lord's actions, 
it almost seems as if we, mankind, is the God and that he is... Because then we're is, dictating to our Lord what he needs exactly. to suffer for so, us. Father, what, what is it that God sees in mankind that causes him to love us so much and to go to such extremes and, and to, to have this divine father? Well, I think our Lord has kind of answered that question himself when he talks about the pearl of great price and the, the, um, the treasure buried in the field. I mean, God talks about us finding him, God's love, the faith, um, buried in the field. We sell everything we've got for the sake of having that one pearl or that one treasure. But I think our Lord is revealing something of himself in that parable. I think our Lord regards a soul that loves him as that pearl of great price, that he sees us that way too. And that even though we're able to love him so, so little, in fact, our love for him is virtual nothingness compared to his love for us. There, there is no comparison to his greatness, his love for us. We can never love him as he loves us. Never. Um, not only to the same extent, but even in the same way. <laughs> he loves us with the divine will. <laughs> we can't love him with the divine will. Uh, and yet, where he finds a soul that loves him, that is such a treasure to him, that he is willing to go to such great lengths, for the sake of that one soul who loves him, right? Even if the soul doesn't love him perfectly. Uh, you know, there was a man, a rich young man, who came to our Lord one day and said, Lord, Master, what must I do to have eternal life, everlasting life? And our Lord said, well, keep the commandments from thy father and thy mother, and so on. And the young man said to our Lord, but these I have kept from my youth, as though what more is there that I could do? And our Lord said to him, well, if you want to be perfect, and notice our Lord made the distinction, if you want to save your soul, and have everlasting life do this. But then when the man, uh, you know, responded as he did, our Lord said, well, if you want to be perfect, then leave everything behind, come follow me. You know? As though our Lord, were, well, we know now that to be saved, one has to love God more than anything else. Now, that's not the same as loving it perfectly. It just means of all the other things we have to love in the world, we love God more. And that's why we will not commit mortal sin, because we will not trade anything for our love for God, okay? But to love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, that is to love him with perfect love, with all your powers of love, that's the love that is necessary to enter heaven. That's the first great commandment. You know? And so our Lord made it very clear that those who love him more than anything else will keep his commandments and be faithful to him, will save their souls. But that's not the same as the perfect love that he ultimately wants of us to enter heaven. To leave all things, just to give up all things and come follow him exclusively, as it were. Um, and so we, we, uh, we see in that God is willing to accept even our imperfect love for him but just so long as we love him most of all. He's willing to accept that as something very precious. And he's willing to work with that and bring it to perfection so that we can fulfill the first great commandment, as our lady did, with love, to love him with all our powers of loving. And even though, again, it's just the love of a creature for his creator and therefore cannot possibly compare with the love with which the creature is loved God created us to be loved by him and to love him in return. But there's no proportion between the two laws. But still, it is so wonderful in the eyes of God 
that he's willing to do everything he did, uh, every, suffer everything he suffered for the sake of that. So our Lord himself seems to regard that our love for him also as a pearl of great price, and which for which he will give everything for the sake of that. You know, we, we're talking about the Hail Mary time, and uh, I think it's important to point out that when we're, we're discussing the matter of the Hail Mary and the greeting of the angel <clears throat> to our Blessed Lady, we're actually talking about the sort of background music of the entire rosary. So every one of the mysteries of the rosary is, a, is accompanied by that. In other words, the meditation on the mystery changes from one to another uh, event in the life of our Lord, in the life of our Lady. But the background of the Hail Mary is something constant throughout. And I think that background of the Hail Mary is meant to enable us to focus more fully on the meditation. Because when we engage our minds in the words of the Hail Mary, we are engaging our, you know, physically, we're engaging ourselves physically in this, in this act of prayer. And that also is kind of a mainstay in helping us because we need help. We need help in meditating on these mysteries. Heaven knows. Anybody who prays the rosary knows that. Everybody who prays the single Hail Mary or single Our Father knows that. And this is one way, one thing, this constant here, which helps us to get into the frame of mind of praying the rosary and helps us to return there. Even when our minds stray, it brings us back there because we're still praying, right? The Hail Mary. If it weren't for that, if we were just meditating and our mind flew off, um, you know, 10 minutes, to 15, 20 minutes later, whoever, we'd realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, gee, where did I go off the rails here? I was meditating on this, and now I'm thinking about the price of tea in China or whatever. And I, who knows what I've been thinking about in the meantime? My mind is just wandering aimlessly. Whereas because I'm praying to Hail Mary, I have something to bring me back, bring me back, bring me back to this. But it's appropriate that it be the words of the Hail Mary because everything started with that. I mean, when I'm, I'm talking about the visitation, when our uh, Blessed Lady, pursuant to her divine mission, is carrying the Christ child to John the Baptist, where the Christ child will sanctify John even before John's birth. Mary is carrying him there. I mean, this is emblematic of Mary's vocation to bring Christ, bring the Christ child where he wants to go. Take him there because this is his mission. She's still doing that, right? This is the point. She's still doing that. This is her mission still in heaven to bring him there. And um, so if I'm thinking of the visitation or I'm thinking about the, the nativity, our Lord, of our Lord, I'm thinking about the presentation that he's carried into the temple in the arms of Our Lady, right, to be offered to the Father there as the firstborn, and the sacrifice of the turtle does to be offered. I'm praying the Hail Mary, praying the Hail Mary, where it all began. That's like the anchor. Every one of these mysteries started there, right, with that message. And so the choice of the Hail Mary as the, as it were, background music of the uh, of the rosary is sort of in a in a sense maybe a poor example but like the opening theme of the symphony which recurs you know throughout throughout the symphony 
and is reprised often at the end, too, with a great crescendo, right, and so on. But this is where it all begins. This is the theme that is woven throughout. So um, it's to start with the first joyful mystery, with the actual deliverance of the Hail Mary from the from God the Father to the angel is very it's a perfect place to start. So you can see divine wisdom present there in the in the in the Holy Rosary itself. Well, Father, in closing, what are some practical everyday things that uh, that Catholics can do to imitate the virtues that we see in both our Lord and Our Lady in this first joyful mystery of the Annunciation? Well, I would say in the first place, imitate Our Lady in prayer. Yeah. Nothing is more jarring and offensive than to hear people praying the rosary badly. I mean, how many, how many families, when they do pray the rosary at all, say, Our Father, Art, and help you, I mean, it just becomes gibberish. And the kids want to race through, they want to get this over. Hail Mary for the grace of the Lord, but the they can't even pronounce the words. And why do parents allow that? That's so disrespectful. And they're teaching their children disrespect and tolerating that. They have to insist from the beginning. That's not prayer. That's like taking this, uh, what should be prayer, wrapping it up and, and, and balling it up and throwing it, and shooting it like a spit water in our his face. That's not right. And so they need to insist for themselves to begin with. I'm going to say the words. One thing that we always have to struggle with when we test the children for First Holy Communion is to get them to say the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Act of Contrition, and the Our Father and the Hail Mary, because they all tend to kind of run into each other with the kids. And, and it comes up to... It, it's sort of like rice that is all clumped together. You know, this is... Um, if that's what it sounds like, like this, this ball of, this clumpy ball of, of mealy rice or something, imagine what it sounds like to the angels in heaven. So, I mean, the parents themselves have to get used to the idea of we're actually praying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If they don't pronounce all those words clearly and distinctly, it's not prayer. It becomes a big jumble. The children are not going to learn that, and they're not going to learn to pray. But there's a certain way to pronounce those words that really constitute, that really represent prayer. And the respect starts there in the way the words of the prayer are started. So, uh, in the way the, the words of the, the distinctness with which the words are pronounced. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray them as though they have meaning. Pray those words as though they have meaning to you. Pray those words as though you are actually aware of their meaning and you care about what they mean. You know, Pray them. Don't just say them. Because if you're just going to say them, they will be an insult to God. And you're not going to be actually saying anything that even resembles outwardly a Hail Mary, let alone inwardly. <clears throat> so please teach your children to respect the prayer. Be our Father, the Hail Mary, by the way you lead it. And when you're leading them in a rosary, teach them to respect those common prayers that you can say together as the background for the meditation that they should be, you know, 
thinking that should be going through their minds at the time. Um, all too often, uh, our young and sometimes even older people just don't want to, they, they shy away from the rosary, they put it off as long as they can when they pray it, if they pray it. They, they pray it very disrespectfully, and I think it's because they've never in their lives prayed it correctly, and maybe never even heard others pray it with respect and properly, because if they did, they couldn't lose that. Once they've done it, once they've begun to pray the prayer as it really is meant to be prayed, once they're really praying the rosary, they would never part with it. To just, they couldn't bring themselves to just rattle it off like some claptrap that they memorized for the sake of passing geometry class or, you know, poetry class or whatever. No, this is not uh, something, just some drudgery they're, they're, they're required to recite. Uh, this, is, this is prayer. And once they've experienced that prayer, once they've actually prayed the rosary, they, they can't settle for anything less. If they're settling for anything less now, I, I can't help but think it's because they never actually prayed it. They don't know the difference. I would just tell any parent out there, if you say, okay, and God bless you for doing it, look, it's time for the family rosary. That's a wonderful thing. But if when you kneel down and it's time for 13-year-old Bobby or Janie to lead a mystery, and they start out, our father heart never held the other end, you, you, you have, there's something wrong here. This has been, they've been formed in the wrong way. They've been allowed to do this and encouraged to do this. And you have to make it clear to them, no, this really isn't right, honestly. It just is not respectful. Show them the example in the way you pray and expect them to follow the good example that you said. That's one of the first things I would say, because I think it's just, I mean, it's not only common, it's almost like endemic. It's almost like an epidemic that the rosary is prayed badly, even where it's where it is prayed. That's that's sad. So I'd start there. Too. Okay, sounds good. Well, Father, I thank you for being here tonight. I think this was very helpful and very enlightening. I'm definitely looking forward to the rest of the installments in the series. So thank you. Thank well, you for being here. Uh, Tom, thank you, and I'm, I'm glad we're talking about spiritual topics because you know we can talk about all the controversies of the day. <laughs> Heaven knows their name is Legion, like devils, right? <laughs> the controversies right. of the day, but they don't help us to get any more, any uh, closer to God in the sense that they they can be very discouraging even at times, but inspiring, not so much. What we need is inspiration to love God more, to have a stronger faith and a greater, a deeper hope and a, a greater charity focusing on love for God. And to focus on his love rather than the misdeeds of men. To focus on God's love is really what is most important of all. And that's what the mysteries of the rosary do. So I'm very glad that we're undertaking this. Yes, Father. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.